0: Hey, guys, it's Steve Allman.
1: And Cheryl Strayed. We have just celebrated the second anniversary of Dear Sugar Radio. We hope to keep making the show for many years to come.
0: Ah, but here's the thing. You, our listeners, are a huge part of that, and that's only going to happen if you can show your support in any amount at wbur.org slash give sugar.
1: That's wbur.org slash give sugar. And thank
0: you. So much.
1: Dear Sugar is supported by... The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strade.
0: I'm Steve Allman. This is Dear Sugar Radio.
2: me. I check my mailbox every day. For some bit of sugar that you'll send my way.
0: That's a beautiful Angela Freeman with Wonderly playing us into part two of our dear Sugar Radio Live in Portland at the Aladdin Theater.
1: It, is, it is the Writers Resist Special Edition on this wintry night in January.
0: That's right, January of 2017. And I was thinking, Cheryl, and I've been thinking a lot over the past few weeks uh, about an odd story from my childhood when I was maybe four or five years old my mom and dad sat me and my brothers down and explained quite calmly that uh, my dad might be going away for a few days and that he might be going away to jail. And the reason he was gonna be going away to jail, they explained to us, uh, was that he was gonna be holding hands with some other people in front of Moffat Field, which is a large Air Force base to protest the war in Vietnam, which we knew a little something about anyway. We knew lots of people were being killed there, and I remember being bewildered at the time and greatly relieved when the next day my dad showed up in a suit and tie, which I I don't think I'd ever seen him wearing. He had been in jail, but just briefly, and had come home. And it was sort of a happy story as I remembered it, but I've been thinking about it increasingly uh, in these last weeks and months, because I have kids. And at that time in his life, he was in his early 30s, he had three kids, I guess a six-year-old and two four-year-olds, and he was working at Stanford University and organizing students against the war, for which I think um, he was penalized, never hired there because of those activities on a full-time basis. Um, In addition to risking going to jail for a short or large amount of time, And I think I've been thinking about it because for a long time, as I thought about the election, I think, like a lot of people, I was thinking, oh, we're just, uh, we didn't take Trump seriously. And I think that's not it. I think we didn't take democracy seriously. I think that's what happened. I think there's been a fatal lack of seriousness. And the moment that the uh, election occurred, something really snapped in my mind. And I realized, oh, Actually, democracy isn't an entertainment product. It isn't something that we passively consume. We, the price of citizenship is that we have to now, in this moment, we finally have realized that we can't just drift along. We actually are gonna have to be active participants in this democracy if we want our values to, in, in any way, be reflected and or not desecrated in, uh, in the public forum, and my dad really, uh, I look at his legacy, and my mom as well, who protested in the civil rights movement, uh, you have to inconvenience yourself. You have to get off of line, detach from the screens, and we have to find a way to convert our anger and our anguish into action. That's the only way it's gonna, we're, we're gonna be able to resist, as writers, as citizens, as human beings.
1: Yeah, I think that I mean just we're going to be answering questions from the audience later in this hour, and and I think so many of them, as you see, but like how do we go forward effectively? Um, we can think of all kinds of ways that we can gather together. Like I think that this uh, sort of thing is is really important. It's about community building. And We're having fun here tonight. We're sharing ideas. We're we're th- you know thinking intentionally about um, our role in this democracy. But the next step is of course doing something and i hope we can generate some some ideas collectively not just from the stage but but amongst y'all tonight and i think everything about resistance is even though that word is about pulling this way it's actually about moving forward and i think that you know you're you're parents modeled that for you, and so many of us came up with parents, some of you in the room maybe were in that generation that protested that war or were active in the civil rights movement of the 60s, and, you know, that we had that modeled to us, and I do think many of us got a bit complacent about how to, how to take that kind of action into the streets.
0: Right, and I, I mean, I say that myself. I feel, and I think it's appropriate to feel a certain amount of complicity. I didn't take it seriously enough. That's on me that's not on somebody else, that's not on Trump voters, that's, that's, this is a democracy. Uh, And and if you didn't do your part, then that means you have to not beat yourself up endlessly, but convert that guilt into, all right, what's my plan of action, what can I do? I wanna read one quick quote, Cheryl, because I think it's from a book called Amusing, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was written in 1985. The cultural historian, Neil Postman, was writing really in response to Reagan and the the age of Reagan. And here's what he wrote, and it just, this gets louder every year. When cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. So one of the first things that we can do as citizens is not talk in baby talk about these issues and talk very specifically and pointedly about the policy. This isn't a vaudeville act anymore. This isn't Trump's a silly monster. He's a this. this is now at the very basic level of policy. You know, 20 million people, and my family included, are now at the risk of, um, you know, losing their health insurance. And th- that is going to happen unless we are very pointed in, in making our voices heard and have clear action that's about those policies and their human and moral effects, not about you know, the sort of big cable TV game of recrimination where we're really an, an indignant audience rather than activists.
1: Yeah. Well said. So let's bring our guest on stage.
0: So Zahir john Mohammed is a freelance journalist and co-host of the podcast Races Sandwich. He's also the policy director for the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, and he teaches writing nonfiction at the Attic Institute in Portland. Please help me welcome to the stage Zahir john Mohammed.
3: Hi, Zahir. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Dear Sugar Radio. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, listen, you know, I read about your history. You actually were not a writer first. You were in politics. Yeah, for nine years. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about that?
3: Yeah, sure. I worked in Washington, D.C. from 2003 until 2011. I worked at Amnesty International uh, working on human rights abuses in the Middle East. And then I worked for Keith Ellison, a Democrat from Minnesota, a congressman. Yeah. (laughs) So um, he was the first Muslim from uh, elected to the U.S. Uh, Congress as well as the first African-American from the state of Minnesota. So I did foreign policy work for him for two years. Uh, and then I left partly because the Republicans came to power and I couldn't take it anymore. So, so I mean, uh, I, am, I am surprised about Trump, but not really because I kind of saw this you know, band of Republicans come to power in 2010. And I also saw the capitulation of Democrats to this new band of Republicans.
0: So, on that note, do you think now about, as, a, as somebody who was really in the world of politics and high level politics, I think for the most part, I can say for myself, I'm sort of clueless. It sort of seems to be some crazy theater that operates on, on, on TV. What should democratic leaders uh, or be doing right now, in your view? What's, what's the proper response? Sure, I, I
3: think the most important thing is, well, two things. Number one is, I think it's important to look at really micro-issues. So we're in Portland right now, for example, and the, the most diverse part of the city is an area called Kali, which has the only area of the city that has majority population of people of color. It also has the least number of sidewalks, the least number of parks, and people make $10,000 less there than they do elsewhere in the city. So when I see people holding up signs that say love Trump's hate or empathy, I I really couldn't care, to be honest. I just get really bored by that. I want to see specific, like, let's hold our, our, our politicians accountable on very specific issues. We have the highest number of hate crimes per capita in the state of Oregon, according to the Southern Poverty Legal Center. I don't want to hear about outreach, I want to hear about us improving ways in which we can report hate crimes. Right. And we're not all equally vulnerable at this moment. If you're Sikh, if you're Muslim like myself, you're particularly susceptible. We're all going through a tough time. If you're an LGBT youth, you're particularly vulnerable right now. So I think we have to get really uncomfortable because when I worked in Congress, I saw the way the Republicans, they were literally putting names of Muslims on lists, saying these are spies. It took me so long to build up a career where I finally got to the U.S. Congress, to this dream job, and here Republicans are accusing my friends of being spies. And I saw Democrats didn't do anything about it. I was in meetings with senior Democratic leadership. They didn't do anything. So I said, that's it. I'm leaving. Like, you don't want me here. So I went and I decided I moved to India and became a writer.
1: And and you moved to I mean your decision to become a writer is also political.
3: Yeah, I mean one story I'll remember is um, there were these incidents of uh, LGBT youth who were committing suicide because uh, of bullying, and I remember I, I met with this one woman, uh, this one mother whose son committed suicide in Minnesota. I worked for a Minnesota congressman, and on a policy level at that point Republicans had already taken over. We really couldn't do much on a policy level, and I remember thinking I was listening to a story thinking. You know, there's tremendous power to tell stories, but only if we tell uncomfortable stories. There's a beautiful line in Lydia Yuknovich's book, I hope I get it right, it says, think if Anne Frank wrote about trees. But Anne Frank didn't write about trees. She wrote a really uncomfortable story that still sticks with us today. And so, like, I thought, I really want to write uncomfortable, messy stories. I don't want to be liked anymore. I don't want to be popular. Not that I ever was, but do you know what I mean? And, <laughs> And I think for me, as a person of color, people will have long conversations with me. Oh, tell me about all the Indian food in town. But they don't want to hear anything about what is it like to be an Indian American in the city. And so Soleil, my co-host, and I said, we're going to start our own podcast. And we said, like, it's so important to have conversations about is this uh, tomato organic? Is it local? But like, what about about the person serving us food? What about the misogyny in, in the food world? What about the fact that you have people working in kitchens who are homeless? And so we thought, like, we can still enjoy a nice meal and talk about what is it like to be a Somali-American in this city, you know, um, who are the communities facing such hardships right now. We have voices. We exist here as people of color, but people don't want to listen to us. So we said, forget it. We'll just do it ourselves. Right.
1: So we have, here a question, a letter. Um, We'd love for you to help us answer. My pleasure. Dear Sugars, I'm an immigrant and black. I recently became a citizen and voted for the first time. I live my life to the highest standards possible and use good judgment in everything I say and do. I have a nine-year-old daughter who is biracial. After the election results, I'm very worried about my family's well-being. This election has given radicals of every creed the confidence that their hate speech is acceptable. I'm upset with all of my white friends that say they love me but voted for that guy. How can I survive this without being
3: cynical and angry? Signed, Struggling to See the Positive Side. That's a great question. I'm going to answer it, if I may, with a story. So, I was very fortunate to study with June Jordan, African-American poet. She died in 2002. so a mentor of mine. She's amazing. And, um, you know, she had a collection of, sh- of essays published posthumously, and the New York Times referred to it as rants. Here is a woman who wrote about being raped, who wrote about the awful discrimination that she faced as an African-American woman, She was put in the African-American studies program at Berkeley, not English, and I heard her again and again be referred to as angry. So, two things to that. Number one is, we have to interrogate why certain people are called angry. I was called a sand nigger growing up. I was born and raised in Sacramento. I complained to teachers, they say I'm complaining, they say I'm being bitter, they say you need to be positive. So one is have to figure out what exactly do people mean when they say who, who is called anger, angry in the society and who can be angry in the society. And the second piece of advice is, and, and I, I hope, I'm just going to say this, I think for, for the people of color out there in the audience or listening, you know, I just think we can't care the, the way we used to. We can't continue, like, I spent, I just turned 40, I spent so long trying to get at the table, trying to be liked by white people, and you know, I just think we need to be more comfortable with ourselves, with our own identity, because I sometimes feel like I'm fighting a battle, I feel like especially being Muslim American, sometimes when people come up to me and they say I'm being cynical, they say I'm being bitter, and, and they say they have prejudice towards Muslims, I think you're the one with the problem, not me. That, that prejudice is holding you down. But like, I'm doing my thing. And so like, to me, the person I would say is that, work on not caring. I know that sounds funny, but then also find communities of color to support you. And if you want to help out, find a writers of color group and donate. That's so important. Help a writer of color find his way. I know myself, it's so hard to make it as a writer of color. As a writer in general, but then as a writer of color. It's so hard. So we can all help out.
1: Thank wow. All right.
3: <laughs> thank you so thank you. much. You so it was so much. such an honor and
1: pleasure to talk to you, Zia. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. All right, thank you. Right, thank you. Let's, Let's hear John hear.
0: Muhammad.
1: So now we've reached the moment of, we're going to answer, we're going to, here's what's happening, kids. We're going to answer as many questions as we can in a kind of really fast speed round yep. of these, on these index cards. So let's, let's do these rapid fire style.
0: Yep.
3: Yep. Yep. Yep.
1: Okay. What do you got there for you? Here's what can writers do to empower and support the Washington press Corps in the face of intimidation from the Trump administration? I have a good answer. It's really fast. Yeah subscribe yes. to their magazines and their newspapers and and give money to their you know public radio stations and you know, really like actually support them with our dollars that's one of the things that's kind of um, a bummer about the internet um, which is also the thing that rocks about the internet which is you can get so much access to so much stuff that's free and we all get pissed off when you want to read a story and, and we say it's behind a paywall well so is the Apple that you ate this morning so think of it that way um, you wouldn't think of you know getting a free walking into a store and getting a free Apple, why would you think of getting free journalism? And, you know, we need to, if we're going to have journalism thrive and be alive, we need to actually support the people financially who make it.
0: All right, here we go. How do we assure that we don't make the same mistakes we made when protesting the Vietnam War that is mixing too many issues?
1: Um, I don't know. Well...
0: (laughs) I think it has something to do with what Sahir was saying. You have to be very specific and concrete. For me, right now, what I'm thinking about is the ACA. Uh, it, you know, this is the first thing that's really where the rubber's gonna meet the road, and it's a specific policy, and I wanna remain focused on that, and not just get distracted by the latest fucking Trump fart. I'm I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm really, okay, now it's the ACA and figuring out who you contact, your representative, how you organize protests in your community and support those that are happening at a larger level that says this is a good law that has done hugely important things for the culture and how do we save it.
1: What is the most loving way to resist
0: well, I want to say to uh, have uh, sex with a Trump supporter, but that feels wrong to me. That feels wrong to me.
1: That's pretty loving resistance, huh? You know, I think that uh, <laughs> what Wendy said earlier really struck me is, is, is to remember that it's not, like I think we really get kind of mixed up. Uh, sometimes about this this idea of like empathy and love and harmony and all, all of these these words that we associate, I think with kind of going along with things and accepting things that are unacceptable and you know I think that for me uh, when I First realized, okay, this Trump is really going to be our president. Some of that decision about how to move forward in a loving way was saying, you know, actually, no, I I do draw the line when um, people want to harm others. When people say Muslims should sign up for a registry, or when the KKK is marching celebrating Trump's election, you know that that this would be to accept Trump Trump as our president is an unloving and, and violent act to those communities I care about and those friends I have in those communities. And so, for me, it's, it's you know I think tonight, many here, many people talked about this concept of of really saying who you know deciding who, who you want to protect, and moving forward out of a place of of kindness and consideration rather than making right. peace with every with every group.
0: Right. Oh, I can't! I've got one. This is kind of odd and interesting. I'm curious to hear your response, Cheryl. What would be the one silver lining, if any, of a Trump presidency besides golden shower jokes?
1: You know, I think for me personally and and really in a a lot of um, my friends and acquaintances, this has been an awakening. I always knew that, that sexism was a very big problem, that racism was a big problem, it existed. I didn't know how big and deep and vast and wide it was. I mean, I, I didn't understand we had the capacity as a nation to even come close to electing Trump. And I think that I'm not alone in that feeling. And that was a wake up for me, that I need to uh, listen harder to voices that, that I hadn't been listening to quite as hard before, that I need to think um, more deeply about my place in all of this and, and to really be listening and aware of what, what reality is, not what I thought it was. And so I think that's a silver lining for me.
0: Yeah, and I think also uh, if there's a silver lining, it's the sort of the, the clear moment for there to be a revival of uh, protest culture in the country. I mean, look, every moment of moral progress in the country from abolition to suffrage to civil rights was a kind of moral awakening that the country had to have to recognize we're, we're not behaving decently. And sometimes that awakening is painful and rude, as if from a nightmare into another nightmare. So that's the moment we're in. I'm not sure if it's a silver lining, but we better step up.
1: Yeah. Maybe one more question?
0: Oh. Uh, This is maybe one to close on. How do you... Yeah,
1: last, I just wanna say, unless this is about somebody having an affair with a Trump voter, I'm very disappointed in you guys. I mean, come on, somebody's gotta be getting some action. Okay, read the question.
0: I'm having a torrid affair, no, all right. (laughs) It says, how do you balance being informed citizens who follow the news with not being angry and upset all the time.
1: Yeah, no, that's a real challenge for me. How do I stay informed while also not letting my fury essentially rule my life? Um, I'm, I'm in process with that. You know, I think that the, for me, the only way I've been able to do that is to think about that thing that I said earlier. You know, how do I channel this rage into something that feels ultimately like love to me? And I'll tell you this um, the thing, the place I do that the best is through my writing. That is the place where I feel like, okay, I can tap into that power of story and maybe have some sense of bringing good into the world or bringing light into the world in this time of darkness.
0: Yeah. You know, w- one of the central things I'm doing is I'm trying to keep basically informed about what's going on, but I'm spending, I'm trying to sort of look at my, the time I have in my life for political activity and engagement with what's happening in the culture, politically, uh, at the level of policy, and say, I need to apportion more time to organizing, to taking action, and less time to passively consuming news that is dispiriting to me. And a lot of that time is to get off of social media. And I'm not saying that because you know, it's just a tool, it's just how we use it. But the way that we've been using it essentially has kept us, it's, it, it has helped the transformation of us being a, a republic, a nation into an audience, uh, kind of sort of passively spectating our own ruin um, and am now asking, okay, what am I gonna say to my kids in five years or 10 years? What did I do when I realized that it was now serious?
1: Yeah. So we're going to end with a little bit of music. We have the wonderful band Wonderly, who, as those of you who listen to the podcast know, there are there are our, our people on they're the podcast. they a spirit animal, and they're a spirit animal. And we, animal. we, and we have Jim Bronberg. May I have a round of applause for Jim and Ben Lansberg? They're going to sing a song for us.
2: It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go And her friend is nowhere to be seen As she walks through the sunken dream To the sea with the clearest view and she's hooked on the silver screen. But the film is a saddening bore. But she's lived it ten times or more. She can spit in the eyes of fools as they ask her to focus on sailors fighting in the dance hall. show. take a look at the long man beating up the wrong guy. Oh man, wonder if you'll ever know He's in the best-selling show is alive on tortured brow the Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow and the workers all strike for fame Lenin's on sale again see the mice in their million hordes from Ibiza to the Norfolk Grubs Rule Britannia is out of bounds to my daughter my dog and clown but the film is a saddening whore I wrote it ten times more it's about to be read again as I ask you to focus on sailors fighting in the dance hall oh man look at those cavemen go it's the freakiest show take a look at the the wrong guy. Oh man, wonder if he'll ever know. He's in the best-selling show. is the life on Awesome.
0: Thank you. Thank you, guys.
1: Wow. Thanks, guys. That was Wonderly doing Life on Mars by David Bowie.
0: Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by the wonderful Amory Sievertson. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. We've just heard how wonderful they are. Please subscribe to Dear Sugar on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and write to us at dearsugarradio at gmail.com. That's it for part two of our Writers Resist edition of Dear Sugar Radio at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. Have a great night.